Welcome back to Athens' favorite history podcast, Is This Too Niche? We're your hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Jada. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize because I lied. Liar. I made, I did a lie. I lied to you guys. I said that this week's episode was going to be about vampires. And while I promise that I will do a vampire episode because I love vampires, um, that was a lie. I'm not going to be doing vampires this week. Sorry. Surprise. Um, but yeah. So I decided that this week's topic needed to be changed because there are some pretty intense current events that have been unfolding and occupying my mind. And those are the events unfolding in occupied Palestinian territories right now, specifically in Gaza. And I know that this is a pretty divisive topic, but it's also really important. And especially in the age of social media, when it's easy to get overwhelmed with information and easy to get confused, it can be really daunting to start the process of educating yourself. So that's why we're here. Yes. Um, I'm going to cover the history of Palestine so that you can contextualize the events going on today and take a stance and take action. I'm not going to tell you how to think, but... Like I said, you can contextualize current events using the, the information that I provide. So keep in mind some of the topics that I'll be discussing are going to be pretty heavy. I have some mentions of anti-Semitism, of Islamophobia, of war and terrorism. So that's just my general content warning. Uh, this episode, like I said, is going to be pretty different from the rest of our episodes because since these events are actively unfolding... Um, just bear with me. I try to keep this as like relevant and updated as possible. I finished doing my research this morning and this is Thursday and the episode is going out Sunday. So mm-hmm. things could really change at any moment. So just keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird to cover a like current event cause we're a history podcast. Yeah. And yeah, this episode is pretty, in- it's going to be a little more serious than usual. So this might not be the same is this tunish that you know and love, but I felt that it was important to discuss this topic so again bear with me i'm going to do my best to define terms that might be unfamiliar and explain complicated political moments it's things get a little confusing but hopefully mm-hmm. yeah i can i can work things out for you and please visit um our link tree on our instagram or the link in our description for a list of places to donate petitions to sign action to take etc any minor donation or petition sign can be helpful mm-hmm. So I'm going to start way back in the prehistoric times. Um, It's not super relevant to know this stuff in regards to the current situation, but I do think I kind of want to set the scene to just so that everyone like you understand how rich of a history the land that we know as of Palestine is because it was one of the first places uh, civilized by people. And even before that, there was prehistoric humans living there at one point, I believe. The Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were living there at the same time, and we are Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. So I just think that was really interesting that it's been a place that like humans have been forever. So um, th- that area of the Middle East uh, is part of the Levant, which is also known as the Fertile Crescent, which is where some of the earliest civilizations started. One of the earliest cities ever was Jericho, which today stands um, in Palestinian in Palestinian territory on the West Bank, which is ter- terminology I'll get into a bit later. Um, the land that we refer to today as Pal- Palestine slash Israel has been occupied by humans since the start of humanity, as I mentioned before. And mentions of ancient cultures such as the Israelites, Canaanites, etc. refer to the inhabitants in the area in ancient times and are from the Old Testament. 
The ancient city of Gaza has been around for about 4,000 years and was settled during the Bronze Age, which was about 3,300 to 3,000 BCE. And for reference, the ancient Greek civilization officially began around 900 BCE. So that's quite a few centuries before that. Um, So during the early Bronze Age, the Canaanites arrived in the area, which the Canaanites were real people. But in the Old Testament, they are viewed as hostile indigenous people who would later be conquered by the tribes of Israel after the Israelites make their exodus from Egypt. A lot of biblical uh, context there. It's pretty complicated. Um, I had to read the Old Testament for a class the other week, and I was like, I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Um, But yeah, essentially the Israelites, I believe Moses leads them out of Egypt, and they arrive at in the Canaan area, which is where... I think God promised Abraham's descendants would have a whole uh, promised land there. I think that I'm getting that right. So yeah, uh, lots of like biblical stuff there anyways. um, But not super relevant. I'm just setting the scene. So the Canaanites are conquered by the Israelites and the kingdom of Israel and Judah are established. These kingdoms are later conquered by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians and then by the Persians and then by Alexander Mm -hmm. the Great and then the uh, Ptolemaic Egypt and then the Byzantine Empire, and then Islamic dynasties, and finally the Ottoman Empire. So that, like, ancient history, there's a lot there, just kind of goes through the motions of being conquered by the different uh, powerful civilizations at the time. Uh, So yeah, so for the next chunk, I'm going to be specifically discussing the history of the city Gaza, and I'll explain exactly what Gaza is in modern terms a bit later, but, but yeah, bear in mind that the history of Gaza, that the history I'm talking about isn't actually really just exclusive to Gaza. It kind of applies to the area as well. But again, I'm just focusing on Gaza because it was kind of like Greece's Athens, where it's like a major city and um, that's where things are happening right now. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. important to know about. So because it's it's hard to pin down exactly when the Palestinian identity became a, came about. Some theories suggest that the seafaring Philistines settled the area around the same time as the Israelites in prehistory, and thus the name Palestine in Arabic was derived from the name Philistine, and later that name became Palestine. So we also do see the name Palestine documented in ancient Egyptian maps and hieroglyphics, and when the ancient Romans took over the area, it became known as Syria-Palestine. In regards to the ancient city of Gaza, we know it was occupied by Egypt for a while and then settled by the Philistines. When Alexander the Great conquered in 332 BCE, the city became known at the, the city became a center for Hellenistic learning. And when it was conquered again by the ancient Romans, it was rebuilt and the ancient city was governed governed by a 500 member Senate. Generally, lots of occupation by different ancient civilizations took place. And then the Umayyad and Abbasid Muslim caliphates took over after the Byzantine Empire. During this time of Islamic caliphate rule, many Gaza adopted Islam and the area experienced a bit of a golden age. Many important religious structures that stand in Jerusalem, such as the Dome of the Rock, were built during these caliphates. Mm -hmm. And then we have the Crusades, uh, which took place pretty much all through like the European Middle Ages. At some point during the Crusades, Europeans arrived in the city of Gaza and reported that they found it empty after defeating the Fatimids, which was another Islamic caliphate dynasty. It was unclear why they found it empty. Maybe it was abandoned because of the Crusades, but King Baldwin III built a small castle and persuaded a massive population of native civilians to build a community around the castle to make it look prosperous. And after this little brief, weird crusade blip, the Ayyubid dynasty built the Shuja'iyah neighborhood, which was the first extension of Gaza beyond the old city. So after the crusades, Gaza was destroyed by the Mongols. In 1260, a Mamluk general, Mamluk is another Islamic dynasty, uh, a general named Az-Zahir Baibars, drove the Mongols out and Mamluk domination began in 1277. At this point, the city became prosperous again. A Syrian geographer noted that the trees spread across, across the land, quote, like a cloth of brocade, end quote. 
Unfortunately, in 1348, the bubonic plague hit, and not even four years later, a destructive flood hit Gaza. However, our friend from an earlier episode, Ibn Battuta, visited in 1355, just two years after this flood, and reported that the city was large and prosperous with many mosques, so they must have been able to recover quickly. Finally, a bit more than 100 years later, Gaza had fallen into a depression, and in 1516, it was adopted into the Ottoman Empire. I realize that a lot of these names of civilizations are probably a bit confusing because I'm going through them pretty fast. And if you're not a history person, it's a lot to keep up with. But just for some context, the Ottomans were a Turkish slash Islamic civilization that stretched all around the Mediterranean, the Balkan region, and North Africa. They conquered Byzantine in the 1400s and lasted until World War One. So they were a pretty, pretty strong empire for a while there. So yeah, under the Ottoman Empire, Palestine was formally organized and divided into districts and Gaza became its capital. Under the Ottomans, the city recovered financially and became prosperous once more. In the 1670s, an anti-French, anti-Christian regime came about. However, in the 1790s, Napoleon occupied Palestine, viewing it as his way into both Africa and Asia. An important thing to remember is that Napoleon at this time suggested the idea of Palestine becoming a uh, official state for the Jewish people, but this idea never went through. But it is important to note that he was the one who promoted this idea. And that actually harkens back to this idea of in the area that the Canaanites were occupying as Abraham's descendants promised land and pretty much like from my understanding I could be wrong I think you're meant to interpret that as any as Abraham's descendants being anyone who follows Judaism I believe I could be wrong but that's how I interpreted it so yeah after an embarrassing failed siege Napoleon pulled back and and at this point Egypt took over the area of Palestine but the Ottomans regained control until World War One. it's important to note that in 1834 the peasants revolt has been recognized as a formative moment among the Palestinian identity in regards to establishing a national consciousness and it helps establishes Palestine as what we recognize Palestine as today. And by that, I don't mean like what legally we recognize, but I just mean like the area. Yeah. That's when it became like a modern Palestine. So many historians argue that the Palestinian identity is not exclusive, meaning that because of the long and diverse history, the indigenous people of the area include a diverse group of people such as Arabs and Muslims, which are not mutually exclusive. You can be Arabic and not Muslim at the same time. Um, But just generally speaking, when I refer to Palestinians, I mean the like indigenous people who are from Palestine. So like I said, Egypt took over for a bit and then Ottomans came back. Um, to understand why World War I ended the Ottoman rule, it has to do with the development of a national identity and a national consciousness among many nations in the Balkans. I'm not really a World War I or two person, so mm-hmm. I don't really have like the long answer as to why the Ottoman Empire dissolved, but just know it did dissolve after World War I, which led to a lot of European nations, specifically the British, coming in and causing problems. Course. Seems to be a bit of a pattern. So this is where things start to get complicated. Now that we're in the 20th century, I'm going to be looking at things through lens of pre-1948 and post-1948. After World War I, Palestine referred to the entire area that now compromises that country, which we recognize as Israel now, but also there's Palestinian territories. It's a bit complicated. It's hard to explain. But just know at this point, right after the Ottoman Empire is dissolved, we're looking at Palestine. So I'm going to kind of use a lot of dates for the, ne- the next chunk and it's going to be a little bit complicated to just think of this as like a timeline. This is the important stuff. This is what is affecting current events. So like I said, under the Ottoman Empire, there was a wide range of diverse people living in Palestine. The first Jewish settlement was established in 1860, just outside of Jerusalem. Zionism was not super prevalent at this point, and that is a term that I will define for those who don't know what that means in a little bit. Um, These early Jewish settlements were agricultural, meaning that they required a lot of land, which is something important to keep in mind. 
Starting in 1881, pogroms, which were the massacres of Jewish people, began to occur specifically in Russia. It's important to know that anti-Semitism is deeply rooted in the history of Europe. Like, there was so much anti-Semitism everywhere in Europe, but they were specifically being targeted in Russia at this time, which led to a need to leave, obviously. Mm -hmm. In 1882, Rishon Lezion was established, which means the first to, to Zion. So this is kind of where we start to see Zionism forming. And again, I will define that later. Don't worry. In 1882, the first Aliyah occurred. Uh, disclaimer, I'm not 100% sure that I'm pronouncing any of this right. Um, so the first Aliyah was a mass migration of Zionists to Palestine. For now, I'll define Zionism as a belief that the Jewish people should have their own state. It's a little more complicated than that. I'm going to get into it later. But just for now, I would keep that in mind. Early forms of Zionism never designated that that Jewish state should be Palestine. Britain specifically was the one who came up with that idea and they screwed everything up <laughs> for everyone involved. But I'll get, again, I will get into that. I have seem to have a habit of saying that. In 1894, a Jewish French army captain was unfairly accused of espionage and the government attempted to cover it up. And the rise in anti-Semitism after this event led many Jewish people to believe that they would never be able to be safe in Europe, which is a key idea to remember because it's true. Europe was not a safe place for Jewish people, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But instead of trying to tackle that from the inside, a lot of European countries were like, we should just give the Jewish people a Jewish state where they can, you know, yeah. be safely Jewish instead of attacking some anti-Semitism from within, which is what they should have done. But <laughs> can't go back in time. But whatever. Um, yeah, in 1896, Theodore Herz Herzl published The Jewish State. It never designated that Palestine needed to be this said Jewish state. However, it did push for the establishment of a Jewish state. In 1897, the first Zionist Congress meets. In 1901, the fifth Zionist Congress meets and establishes a Jewish national fund, which was intended to buy and develop land in Ottoman Palestine. Again, keep this in mind because this purchasing of land was often not 100% legal and it systemically displaced indigenous Palestinians from their land. In 1903, the Kishinev pogrom, which was an anti-Jewish riot, led to another migration of Jewish people to Palestine. And in the same year, the Uganda proposal was proposed, and it suggested that land in British East Africa be used as a place of refuge. In 19, Also in 1903, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion were published, which was a deeply, deeply anti-Semitic text that argued that Jewish people were trying to conquer the world, which is a foundational idea uh, of anti-Semitism. It's not true. Don't be anti-Semitic. In 1904, another aliyah occurred, which involved the fleeing of 40,000 people from Russia. And the Hebrew language is, is revived, which is an important cultural moment for uh, Jewish people. In 1909, Tel Aviv is founded and becomes a prominent Jewish settlement. In 1916, the UK and France make a secret Sykes-Picot agreement, which plans on dividing the Middle East after World War One. Why do you feel that you have the right to do that? I don't know, because you're not the Middle East. You are yeah. British in the UK. Anyways, this same year, the UK supports an Arabic revolt against the Ottoman Empire because they're like, oh, if they take the Ottoman Empire down for us, we don't have to do any work. Typical British behavior. <laughs> in 1917, Ottoman rule ended and November 2nd of 1917, the Balfour Dec Declaration is established, which is the British recognizing the right of the Jewish people to have a state in, to have a home in Palestine. They purposely use the phrase home and not state because they wanted to be ambiguous and not cause problems, but leave it to the British colonizers to screw everyone over. In 1919, the third Aliyah occurred. More Jewish people left Russia. In 1920, Haganah formed, which eventually becomes the Israeli Defense Forces, um, which is just 
basically the Israeli army. In 1922, the British mandate for Palestine began. In 1923, um, revisionist Zionism was established, which is um, basically a form of Zionism that supports a violent takeover of Palestine. 1924, a fourth aliyah. 1929, the threat of Nazism becomes prevalent, especially in Germany. And another aliyah occurs. In 1929, tensions rise. There are Palestinian riots in Palestine against Jewish people and vice versa. On August 23rd, 1929, Arabs converge on Jerusalem. And on August 24th, there is a Hebron massacre, which was where uh, 65 Jewish people were killed. And this led to riots breaking out, 116 Arabs and 133 Jewish people were killed. I become like dyslexic when I try to read numbers. Yeah, that's real. In 1931, Ergen is formed, which is a uh, revisionist Zionist group keen on violence. Keep that name in mind. They're pretty important. In 1933, the British limit legal Jewish immigration into Palestine to try to calm tensions. However, because of rising Nazism, illegal immigration also rises, which is fair. You got a place you need to go somewhere. Can't be be Germany because that's... Bad news, bad news. 1936, stage one of the Arab revolt begins. Palestinians riot against British rule. They demand independence and the ceasing of Jewish immigration. Um, To be fair, Jewish immigration was displacing indigenous people and maybe other European countries should have just offered them refuge. But again, I can't go back in time. This is just how things happened. Um, So British declares martial law. 1937, the Peel Commission recommends separating Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arabic. Under the Peel Commission, religious sites such as Nazareth Bethlehem and Jerusalem would have been under British mandate. The Arab Higher Committee denounces this plan. To be fair, it's yeah, it's a it's a colonial plan that would displace indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1937, the second stage of the Arab revolt against British and Jewish people occurs, and Ergen attacks Palestinians. In 1938, things pick up in Germany. Jewish people need a place to immigrate, so they go to places such as America or Palestine. In 1939, Britain blocks any more Jewish immigration to Palestine right on the eve of World War II. Not a good move uh, for Britain. It places a quota on how many Jewish people are allowed to come and then World War II begins. In 1941, the Palestinian leader meets with Hitler and the Axis powers oppose the idea of a state for the Jewish people. Unfortunately, that is because the Axis powers were Nazis and wanted to commit genocide against Jewish people. So I think there was a fundamental disagreement there between why the Palestinians didn't want Jewish people there and why Hitler didn't want Jewish people there. Yeah. Um, in 1942, the Biltmore Conference occurs in New York, which establishes that Palestine should be established as a Jewish commonwealth. On February 1st, 1944, the Jewish revolt takes place. Ergen wants the British to leave and they want Palestine to become a Jewish state. In 1945, World War II ends and the Jewish resistance movement forms. In 1946, Black Sabbath occurs, which was the mass arrest of Zionists by British after British railways and bridges were bombed. On July 22nd, Ergen bombs at British headquarters. In 1947, the U.S. proposes a partition plan, which is accepted by the Jewish agency but rejected by Arabs, which leads to the breaking out of a civil war between Haganah and the Arab Liberation Army. I don't know if I already clarified this, but Haganah is a Israeli movement. In December of 1947, fighting breaks out within the city of Jerusalem. In March 1948, Haganah launches a plan to establish borders and take control of Palestine. On April 9, 1948, Arab village called Deir Yassin is invaded by Ergen and 100 to 120 citizens are massacred. On May 13th of that year, the Kafar Etzion massacre takes place where 129 Jewish people are killed. And in 1948, the state of Israel is officially established. This leads to the Arab-Israeli war, which was neighboring Arabic countries versus Israel. 
Israel, and it leads to the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs. So let me clarify, the formation of the State of Israel didn't just happen. On May 14, 1948, the British mandate was set to expire, so Zionists captured two major Palestinian cities, which are Jaffa and Haifa, and Britain withdrew, and the State of Israel was declared because of this kind of seizure of power. The U.S. and the Soviet Union were the two first nations to immediately recognize Israel as a state, and there were attempts for, you know, peaceful resolutions. Uh, the U.N. Swedish diplomat Folk Bernadotte was actually assassinated by Zionists for trying to bring about a peaceful solution. And within the first year of the state of Israel existing, 700,000 Palestinians became refugees and 13,000 were killed by the Israeli military. In 1949, Israel joined the U.N. and has had gained 78% control over Palestinian land. The remaining 22% was Gaza and the West Bank. So essentially, Palestinians in Israel, a lot of them were displaced. Their homes were demolished or taken by Israelis and were made refugees and sent to Gaza and the West Bank or were sent to other countries. In 1967, the Six-Day War occurred, which changed the Palestinian landscape. Like I said, Israel captured the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza Strip, and these were all places that became known as Occupied Palestine, whereas the rest of the state is known as Israel. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how the, the country is divided up. Occupied Palestinian territories have been subject to the deterioration of human rights and the lack of humanitarian conditions. So... I think I'm going to turn to the Jada Corner for now because that's pretty much the stuff that I'm going to talk about after that is more related to the modern happenings. So I think I want to take a little break because that was a lot of information to digest. Um, But I wanted to kind of set the scene so that everyone can understand what happened to lead to Israel, the state of Israel being the way it is and what the state of Israel exactly looks like. And also, I think it's important to discuss... I think it's kind of clear what my opinions on the matter are. And so I think it's important to contextualize that what happened, it's a little more complicated than other instances of colonialism. However, the state of Israel is a colonial imperialist state. That is not to say that all Israeli people are guilty of uh, colonization. However, like I said, again, very complicated topic. However, there was a mass displacement of Palestinian people, and I'll get into this later, but um, there has been a form of apartheid going on uh, in regards to Palestinians for the past like 75 years now, and it's pretty rough, pretty pretty horrible. Um, I'm just one girl. I don't have a solution to things, and I'm not trying to tell anyone how to think, but that's my two cents. I'll get into more things later, so I'm going to... Stop talking now. I think my opinion will be pretty relevant too. So this week in Jada's Corner, I wanted to talk about a few contemporary Palestinian artists and artworks that you should go check out and support if you can. So let me just get right into it. First up is the incredible Malak Matar. You can follow her artistic journey on Instagram at Malak Matar Art. We'll probably have her tagged on our Instagram post so you can find her there as well. Malak's story is just as powerful as her art. She was born in Gaza. She embarked on her artistic journey at the age of 13 during the intense 51-day military assault on Gaza in 2014. Her artwork serves as a cathartic release, channeling the negative energies she experienced while seeking refuge in her home during the turbulent times. One of my personal favorites among her projects is a children's book called Cities. It beautifully narrates her childhood experiences in Palestine, and it offers a glimpse into her life after the 2014 assault and how she discovered hope through her art. 
What sets cities apart is its ability to tackle serious subjects in a sensitive manner, making it accessible and impactful for young readers. Very impressive that she was able to do that. Mm -hmm. In her artwork, she primarily focuses on the lives of children in Palestine during the Israeli aggressions, being that she was a child herself when she experienced it firsthand. But Malak Matar's work goes beyond what she is creating. It's a testament to resilience, creativity, and the power of art to heal. So I encourage you to go check out her artwork. As well, go check out her interviews on the YouTube Middle East Eye. They are very insightful and she is very, very cool. The next artist I'm going to talk about has influences spanning nearly six decades and that is Samia Halabai. She was born in Palestine. Samia Halabai was uprooted with her family in 1948 and settled in the American Midwest at a time when abstract expressionism dominated the art scene and female abstract painters were facing marginalization. Despite these challenges, Samia emerged as a pioneering force in contemporary abstract art. In her artwork, she draws inspiration from diverse sources like nature, early Islamic architecture, and the Soviet avant-garde. She bounces around a lot in the art world. She does drawing, freeform painting, printmaking, and computer-based kinetic art. Her paintings have not only expanded the tradition of Islamic geometry, but also introduced non-Western contributions to modernism in New York and London. Work. (laughs) She also introduced a very successful undergraduate studio art program and taught as the first full-time female associate professor at the Yale School of Art. You can find her on Instagram at Samia Halaby, all one word, and we will tag her on our Instagram as well. So go check her out. Her artwork is honestly some of my favorite abstract art I have ever seen. The last artist I am going to talk about is Dana Barkawi, who is another artist I'm absolutely obsessed with. She is a Palestinian artist based in Jordan. In a lot of her artworks, in a lot of her artworks, she is exploring narratives rooted in colonialism, community, and womanhood. You can check her out on Instagram at Dana underscore Barkawi. She uses lots of mixed medias to create these beautiful, powerful pieces that are just stunning. I encourage you to check her out on Instagram as well and read her artist statements because they just make her pieces all that more Mm -hmm. impactful. One of my favorite artworks of hers is Beating Down Olives, which references the systemic systematic attacks by Israeli settlers on Palestine Palestine during the olive harvest season, Mm -hmm. which is meant to be a time of celebration for Palestinians. Yeah, so she made an incredibly wonderful painting based Mm -hmm. on that, and it was fantastic. Go check it out. And before we end this segment of Jada's Corner, I wanted to point you in the direction of some photographers that are on the scene documenting the reality of what is happening in Palestine right now. Motaz Azaza, it's at Motaz underscore Azaza, A-Z-A-I-Z-A on Instagram. He is a Palestinian photojournalist that is capturing the horrors in Palestine after over 15 members of his family were killed by the Israeli airstrikes at Samara Abu Alouf Mm -hmm. on Instagram. We'll tag her so you know how to spell it. Yeah, all of these people. Yes, of course. She is a freelance Palestinian journalist based in Gaza that focuses on the effects of the Gaza conflict on women and children. Mm -hmm. And Mohammed Zanun on Instagram has been captured 
capturing the horrors in Gaza as well as the resistance, but also scrolling through his page, he captures Palestine in such a beautiful way. So please go check him out as well. <laughs> and then obviously this is just a few photographers providing firsthand accounts, but there are so many more. Mm -hmm. Photography is so important during a genocide like this, mm -hmm. and they are risking their lives to share the reality of what is happening. So go check out these artists. They will all be tagged. Yep. And that is it for this week in Jada's awesome. Corner. Yeah, I cannot emphasize enough. Check out what we have tagged and check out all of our links in bio and do what you can. Because very important. Very, yeah. very important. Do what you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you, Jada. Now back to me talking for a very long time. <laughs> As I mentioned in my little thing before Jada's Corner, the important things to know are the important places to know are Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel. As I'm sure you gathered from that long tangent that I had, the history of the area is pretty long and complicated, but I resent the phenomenon of modern discussions surrounding Palestine, bo boiling it down to a complicated history. I saw one article during my research that called it, quote, a moral maze. And I feel like this is just an excuse to remain uneducated about yeah. the situation. And I think it kind of diminishes the importance. And I resent that. So when I say that things are complicated, they are. That's true. But I explain things a little bit instead of just calling it complicated and calling it a day. Because at the end of the day... It's not that complicated to recognize the state of Israel as a colonial imperialist state that has displaced indigenous Palestinians and put them under a state of apartheid. I think the more complicated part comes into the how religion, identity, ethnicity plays into things and how the history of the 20th century has affected everything and just generally like the landscape of oppression in Europe and how that affected things and, and um, European imperialism of the Middle East and, and Africa. And that's why things are complicated complicated but mm -hmm. anyways that was a side tangent about why i don't like people using phrases like complicated history and i also would like to say right now that judaism shouldn't be conflated with israel the state of israel has a habit of weaponizing the idea of anti-semitism where they like to and when i refer to they i mean the state of israel not individual israelis and not individual jewish people israel likes to weaponize anti-semitism as a way to say oh you can't criticize the state of Israel because that's anti-Semitic, which is not true. Criticism of colonial imperialism is always valid. And... Don't let yourself be silenced, but also fight against anti-Semitism at the same time because anti-Semitism is bad. Yeah. Um, and so is Islamophobia. So yeah, Israel does not equal Judaism. Keep that in mind as we go forth. Um, that was my not very eloquent side tangent. <laughs> Anyways, so you might be wondering, here's one more thing to clear up, why it is that Palestine was designated as a homeland for Jewish people. And this, like I said, I mentioned earlier, it was actually Napoleon's idea, but it also comes from that long history of Israel being... Uh, designated as a promised land by God. Um, I'm not going to speak on how I feel about that because I'm not a religious person. So obviously I don't really believe what is the, uh, what's written in like religious scripture. And that's up to the religious, the people of that religion to interpret it. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Palestinians refer to this creation of the state of Israel as al-Nakba, which refers to the catastrophe, or which translates to the catastrophe. And this is because as a result of the formation of the state of Israel, like I said, 700,000 Arabs were expelled from their homes and the forceful displacement of Palestinians from their homes and the Israeli purchase of land was 
an idea facilitated by the British. It's a very imperialist colonial idea. Many Palestinians were forced to leave the country. Others were sent to the West Bank and Gaza by force. And between 1947 and 48, Zionist military leaders met and formed plans to ethnically cleanse Palestine, which is according to Elon Papp, <laughs> who is a historian on Israel. That's right. Ethnic cleansing. It's crazy. So now I'm going to discuss the Israeli apartheid of Palestinians, but before there are some terms I want to define. Um, administrative detention refers to the imprisonment of Palestinians without trial. Closure refers to the blockade of towns and villages in occupied Palestinian territories. There has been a blockade on Gaza and on the West Bank since 2005, which blocks essential resources from entering Palestine. Kept pa- occupied Palestinian territories severely impoverished and in, in states of ruin at some points. Um, and it is an intentional thing that the Israel government has been doing. Oh my god. Collective punishment is a war crime defined by the Geneva Convention wherein entire populations are punished for the actions of one or a few and this has been routinely used against Palestinians and it is currently being used against Palestinians in the form of demolishing homes, instating curfews, destroying land and infrastructure. Ethnic cleansing is what it sounds like. It's a form of genocide and it is the state of Israel's strategy against Palestinians. That is an objective fact. The separation wall or the apartheid wall was something that began construction in 2002. It cuts into Palestinian territory and has resulted in the loss of Palestinian land and ghettoization of Palestinian towns and villages, meaning that Palestinian towns have fallen into extreme levels of poverty and disrepair. The wall has cut Palestinians off from social services, farmland, education, and health resources. A radical group of Israelis called the Anarchists Against the Wall was formed by Jewish Israeli people who opposed apartheid and recognized the wall as a means of ethnic cleansing of Palestinian people. So now I need to spend a bit of time defining Zionism. It's viewed differently based on the point of history that we're talking about. Pre-1948 refers to um, a movement to establish a Jewish state as a result of the persecution of Jewish people in Europe. And post-1948 Zionism refers to the belief that Israel has a right to exist as a state. Political Zionism grew out of European nationalism. Cultural Zionism wanted to ensure that the Jewish state had a flourishing Jewish culture. Labor Zionism is where things get a little bit complicated. It, It was a collectivist farming movement that believed in the transformative power of the land. Unfortunately, this led to the mass purchase of land and displacement of native Palestinians. And you'll see later that sometimes these purchases of land were not done legally or fairly. Revisionist Zionism, as I mentioned before, was a pro-violence movement. Religious Zionism is a belief that the establishment of the state of Israel is part of a bigger divine plan. Christian Zionism is the belief that the Jewish return to the Holy Land is a precursor to the second coming of Christ. And post-Zionism is a movement that is a criticism of Zionism in the state of Israel. That's a lot. It's important to know that Zionism is considered a colonial imperialist movement. Um, I mentioned earlier, but the roots of anti-Semitism come from the belief that Jewish people hold some kind of disproportionate power over the world. If you're familiar with conspiracy theories surrounding Hollywood, quote, elites, those are very anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Don't subscribe to those conspiracy theories like Illuminati conspiracy theories, etc. that all derives from anti-Semitism. Um, because there's this belief that like Jewish people have power over the world, which is objectively not true. Jewish people are systemically oppressed. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm emphasizing this over and over again. Anti-Semitism is not okay. However, again, it is not anti-Semitic to oppose the state of Israel. It has been debated as to whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic, but I think it really is contextual. Um, It's not inherently anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist. However, there are cases where things can teeter over the edge. And we have in the recent weeks following the current events, we have seen a rise in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, especially on college campuses, which needs to be fixed. That's really inappropriate and not not helpful at all. A few important places to be defined. Jaffa is a city near Tel Aviv in Israeli territory. 
It is a city where many displaced Palestinians live in impoverished conditions. Jerusalem is a holy city to Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. It was captured by Zionists in 1967. Um, Palestines do have a small sliver of land in East Jerusalem. Tel Aviv is Israel's second biggest city. And the Gaza port is the only port on the Mediterranean Sea where no ship is allowed to anchor due to Israel's occupation. So as I discussed in the punk episode, the term apartheid comes from the Afrikaans word for separation. It is similar to the era of Jim Crow in the American South, wherein segregation was not only occurring, but it was upheld by the law. Apartheid is enacted upon Palestinians, both in Israel and in occupied Palestinian territories. It manifests as massive seizures of land, unlawful killing, restriction of movement and denial of nationality and citizenship. That last one is really important because the denial of citizenship allows for Palestinians to be viewed as unequal to Israelis by law and they don't receive the same rights and protections. According to Amnesty International's Security General, Palestinians have been treated as an inferior racial group to Israelis. Several regimes regimes within occupied Palestinian territories enforce segregationist policies. Land is routinely seized from Palestinians, and Israel can get away with this by saying that the land is being used for nature reserves or for military firing zones. 36 Bedouin villages, which house 68,000 people, are currently unrecognized by Israel and thus lack electricity, water, are excluded from political participation, healthcare, and education. And blockades and attacks on Palestinian settlements also occur. So what are some ways to move around and end apartheid? There's four four things that can help. One, end the demolition of uh, homes and forced evictions. Two, grant equal rights to Palestinians in Israel and in occupied territories. Three, recognize the rights of Palestinian refugees and return to their homes. And four, reparation for reparations for violations of human rights. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to hone in on a specific town to really illustrate how apartheid uh, takes place there. The Al-Walaha, Al, I'm going to say Al-Walaha, but I'm not 100% sure that that's how you pronounce it. It is a village near Jerusalem. In the past, it was prosperous because of an Ottoman railroad connecting it to ports and because of its fertile land. Unfortunately, fertile land equals profit. So Israeli settlers and the IDF both, both violently displaced the people of Al-Walaha. Villagers recall hearing gunshots on dusk the night of May 15th, 1948, and having heard about a recent massacre of Arabs in Der Yesen, they fled and built wooden homes on a nearby hill, and it was more than a decade later in 1967 when Awalaha was officially occupied. After the Six-Day War in 1967, the Israeli military annexed East Jerusalem and took over an Ottoman base, transforming it into a Jewish settlement, which was illegal under international law. Awalaha still exists, but it's been reduced to 30% of the size of what it once was, subject to poverty and violence by the IDF and by militant settlers. I'd like to emphasize, this does not refer to all Israeli settlers. However, there are individual militant settlers. Um, because of the construction of the separation wall or the apartheid wall that I mentioned earlier, dozens of homes have been bulldozed and at least 90 are under orders to be demolished. Awalaha is just one of dozens of towns that this has happened to. I chose to discuss Awalaha because it is also home to Al-Badawi, which is one of the oldest olive trees in the world. This tree has been carbon dated and it is estimated to be between four and 5,000 years old, and it's in danger of being destroyed because of the separation wall. That's so sad. I know. A local farmer named Salah Abu Ali has taken it upon himself to watch over the tree. He hosts pilgrims at his home, and he and his sons often sleep at the trunk of the tree to make sure it's protected. <laughs> he even slept there in 1948 when Palestinians were forced to flee Awalaha. Um, it holds The tree holds a lot of historical and cultural significance. 
Um, it's, and it isn't just because of its age. All the trees in general are incredibly significant to Palestinian people. They're symbolic because they are rooted to the land, much like how Palestinian people are rooted to Palestine. Their trees are also incredibly resilient and able to survive in arid environments and withstand great strife, which is representation representative of how Palestinians are able to withstand the encroachment upon their land. Not only are they culturally symbolic, but it is estimated that between 80 and 100,000 Palestinian families rely on olive crops as sources of income and f- nutrition. The crop contributes to 14% of the local economy. Famed poet Fadwa Tukan wrote of the olive trees, and I put that in our Instagram if you want to see a little snippet from that. Unfortunately, Israel has statutes in place regarding olive trees. If it can be proven that the land used to harvest olives is being neglected, the land can be seized. Members of the IDF and militant Israeli settlers have been systemically attacking olive groves in order for that that land to be identified as neglected, in order for this land to be taken away and given to Israelis. Between 2020 and 2021, 9,300 trees are uprooted in the West Bank alone. And each year, Palestinian farmers have to plant 10,000 new trees in order to keep up. It's devastating that these trees are being destroyed. It's environmental degradation. It's harmful to the Palestinian people who rely on these trees for their livelihood. And some of these trees have been rooted in the land since the time of the ancient Romans, just to be uprooted now. Villager Abdullah Yusuf report reported that in 2003, quote, the settlers came down the hill with knives and guns. They slashed open our sacks and emptied the olives onto the ground. They put guns against our head and make, made us stand there while we while they did it. By cutting the trees, they can say the, na- the land is neglected, end quote. Militant Israelis and IDF have also burned trees, blocked water, sprayed chemicals, beat farmers, etc. It's important to know that the Torah actually instructs that even in times of war, fruit trees must not be destroyed. So let's talk about the more recent side of history in regards to what's happening now. I left off with the 1967 Six-Day War, wherein West Bank and Gaza became two designated Palestinian territories. Um, So yeah, again, that's where I left off. In 1987, a group called Hamas formed as an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. It was founded by Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. The goal of Hamas was to replace Israel with a Palestinian state. It has been recognized as a terrorist organization as they use extreme militant techniques. In 2005, Israel withdrew from Gaza and gave political power to the Palestinian authorities, the Fatah Party. The Fatah Party currently rules over the West Bank. However, in 2006, Hamas beat the Fatah Party in Gaza. And since then, there has been it's been the de facto government. There's been no way to vote them out. And a third of Palestinian people have said that the election of Hamas has been has been the most devastating thing to happen to Gaza since the initial declaration of the state of Israel. Um, so it's safe to say that Hamas does not reflect the beliefs of the Palestinian people, which is important to know. Mm-hmm. So let me set the scene for current day Gaza. Gaza has been experiencing extreme extreme poverty since 2005. There's been a heavy restriction of goods and international aid to the Gaza people because of the Israeli blockade. And Palestinians, again, have not been able to vote to replace Hamas. Hamas is pretty conservative. They enforce Sharia law, which is law based on uh, like Islamic scripture. However, they enforce it in ways that are actually more restricted than what's actually required. For instance, the gender segregation experienced in Gaza. In 2021, there was an 11-day conflict between Hamas and Israel, and it was a result of Hamas sending rockets into Israel. So Hamas has been in conflict with Israel for a while. There's been a few outbreaks of conflict. However, on October 7th of this year, Hamas enacted a terrorist attack upon Israeli citizens, killing 1,200 and taking 200 hostage. This was a globally shocking event, and it was incredibly traumatizing and painful to Jewish people worldwide, as it was the largest mass killing of Jewish people since the Holocaust. It was very serious and really devastating, and 
People are still mourning and we are still waiting for the hostages to be released. Hamas actions, however, do not reflect the actions of the entire Palestinian people who are feeling the brunt of Israel's counterattack because of this collective punishment. Again, that is a war crime. I'll get into it later. However, as a response to the terrorist attack, Israel declared war on Hamas. The goal of Israel is supposedly to eradicate Hamas and to release the hostages. However, they have imposed a complete siege on Gaza, which was a population that was already vulnerable and deprived of rights and resources. And now the conditions that they're in violate humanitarian standards. And it is collective punishment and it is genocide. In the first three weeks of fighting, three weeks, it's been five or six weeks now. 80 or 8,000 Palestinians were killed and 40% of those people were children. In the first 13 days following the Hamas attack, Israel launched thousands of airstrikes on Gaza. Thousands. That thousands of airstrikes in the first 13 days. Not only were innocent Palestinian civilians immediately killed in these attacks, but the threat of malnutrition, starvation, and disease are all imminent. Piles of garbage threaten diseases like cholera and dysentery from spreading on the streets. The 16-year blockade that was enacted upon occupied Palestinian territory was already hurting Palestine, especially their health sector. Before the war started, Gaza had 2,500 beds available in the healthcare system, and as of October 19th, which was a month ago, 12,500 people were wounded. That is not enough beds. And I checked the number today day and the number is more than twice or not more than twice yeah it's more than twice that number it is now at twenty eight thousand people have been wounded surgeons in gaza are operating with flashlights rationing water and anesthesia they don't have enough energy or they don't have enough electricity or fuel al shifa which is one of gaza's primary hospitals is operating as a refugee camp as well as a hospital housing fifty thousand people Mattresses line the floors, hygiene is inadequate, inadequate, sanitation is lacking, and people are having to be buried in mass graves. On October 30th, an Israeli airstrike damaged part of Gaza's only cancer hospital. Israeli propaganda tried to blame Hamas, saying that they were using the hospital as a command center, but regardless, attacking a hospital is a war crime. Again, regardless of if Hamas was in that hospital, it is still a war crime. Mm-hmm. Although the state of Israel does not seem to be, does not seem to care. As of Wednesday, the UN voted for a humanitarian pause for supplies to be delivered to Gaza. This is my opinion. I'm stating my personal opinion. A humanitarian pause is not enough. Yeah. Because quite literally the logic there is we'll pause the warfare, send supplies to Gaza so that they can take care of the damage that's been done. And then we'll do more warfare. Like yeah. that's the idea where there needs to be a point blank ceasefire. Not only are civilians being injured, but also everyday life is continuing in the sense that women are giving birth, cancer patients are being treated, et cetera, et cetera. And with inadequate resources, these things are incredibly dangerous, like incredibly dangerous. And is um, doctors are working all night and day, treating twice as many patients as hospitals have the capacity for. For, I won't share explicit details because I don't want to sensationalize these events, but if you're interested in further reading, I did read a, uh, an article called Stories of Loss and Grief from Gaza, which was very eye-opening. Aside from hospitals, many Palestinians are being told to evacuate and go to safe spaces. However, thousands of people have crowded to the south, and many of these safe spaces are not actually safe and have been bombed. There's severe overcrowding and lack of resources. One, one, one woman recalled that in, an entire family, and I don't mean a nuclear family, I mean an extended family of 40 people, were wiped out in one airstrike. Another woman named Nahal Alami is living in an apartment with no water, fuel, electricity, and with 20 other people in one apartment. 
These are the conditions that everyday innocent civilians are facing. People our age, people who are in, who were living lives similar to us, and then all of a sudden, everything got uprooted. Yeah, it's people, it's like so easy to misplace mm-hmm. your displace yourself from it yes. too, since we're not yes. living it. And because this tends to happen when people are like, "Oh, it's just the Middle East," but why it, is that? That's yeah. because of years of colonialism. Yeah, yeah. Um, people our age had to leave the Islamic University at Gaza and are facing death every day. Palestinians journalist Yara Eads said that they lost 14 family members in one airstrike. As of November 13th, which was a few days ago, 11,000 Palestinians have died in Gaza. So now I have a little tangent about how to navigate this political environment. There's a lot of information being thrown at us all at once. I'm guilty of this. I just talked into your ear for how long? 58 minutes. And again, I can't tell you what to think, but I do hope that everyone listening would consider following the path of further educating yourself and taking Mm -hmm. action. This is kind of, I'll explain the political vibe is that the right word? No. Maybe not. I don't, think, I don't think that is the right word. But context. The though. political context for what's going on right now. So Israel's foreign minister said that he believed Israel will slow operations due to international pressure. Feel like they should stop operations because it's genocide, not just because of in- yeah. international pressure, but whatever. Uh, the finance minister of Israel said that, quote, Palestinians should voluntarily leave Gaza for other countries, end quote. Ugh. That, what? Okay. What? Israeli agricultural minister said, quote, we are now rolling out the Gaza Nakba, end quote. If you if you remember earlier, I said Gaza, Nakba it refers to the historical catastrophe wherein hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced because of colonialism. So that's just like a crazy thing to say. And yeah, so the UN did vote for a humanitarian pause, but many countries are supporting Israel nonetheless, the US included. As of Wednesday, 12 countries in the UN voted in favor calling for a humanitarian pause. However, they changed the final draft from saying that they were demanding a pause to saying that they were calling for a pause, mm. which there is weight in the way that we word things. Absolutely. Shout out to Jordan, Jordan's queen, Rania al-Abdullah. She called for a ceasefire. She said, quote, what we've seen in recent years is the charge of anti-Semitism being weaponized in order to silence any criticism of Israel. When 1.1 million people are being asked to leave their homes or risk death, that is not a protection of civilians. That is forced displacement, yeah. end quote. I also read a, a very interesting article called Supporting Palestinian Rights is Anti-Semitic Because Israel Wants It to Be. Um, the irony is that Zionism and anti Semitism are each other's best recruiting tool, and I would recommend that you read it because it's very uh, eye opening. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty interesting what a lot of American politicians have to say. Our favorite girl in the world, by that I mean <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> yeah, that one. She once blamed wildfires on Jewish space lasers, and she compared mm-hmm. mask mandates to Nazi gas chambers. Okay, but she's now condemning anti-Semitism just now and it's like no we know what you're doing you're being islamophobic and yeah you're you want the u.s to make money off of palestinian land that's what's happening you don't get to decide you don't get to pick when you're going to be anti-semitic anti-semitic and when you're not going to be anti-semitic yeah. Miss Marjorie oh Taylor my Green. god please resign sorry in regards to u.s policy biden does support a two-state resolution hasn't moved to start negotiations he's actually sent 14.3 billion dollars to Israel for, quote, air and missile defense support. Jaw on the floor. None of those airstrikes are in defense. 
Biden is, and when I say Biden, I mean like the entire U.S. is sending money to Israel to kill people. Oh my God. U.S. has long been an ally of Israel for evil capitalist reasons, but I won't get into that. I mean, I kind of did get into it, but like whatever. Two things have been happening in the U.S. as a response, as a result of the um, Hamas attack and the breakout of war. One is the increase of anti-Semitism and the other is the increase in Islamophobia. Many Arabs and Muslims say that it is reminiscent of post 9-11, except that this time we have internet and social media to exacerbate the issue. I will also say that white supremacists tend to conflate Islam with a riot rage of people who are not necessarily associated with Islam. So not only are Muslims hurting, but Arabs are too. There was a fatal stabbing of a six-year-old Palestinian American boy in Chicago named Wadea Al-Fayom. Oh my god. Um, by his landlord. He also injured the mother. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. There are however some good things to look towards. Two Jewish groups for Palestine. The Jewish peace activists and If Not Now. And I would recommend going to their sites. Jewish peace activists actually have like a lot of really good resources. One of their things is a petition for better New York Times coverage, which as someone who spent the past week scrolling through the New York Times, I would yeah. really advocate for better coverage because <laughs> New York Times needs to get its shit together. Um, They organized a recent march on Capitol Hill and a sit-in. And I just, you know, think it's important to recognize that that does exist. There are Jewish people who are pro-Palestine. It does exist and it proves that. It, yeah. Yeah. It proves my earlier points. One other thing that I wanted to discuss was there seems to be a conservative line of rhetoric where they like to be like, try being queer in Palestine as a way to almost justify Palestinian, like genocide of Palestinian people. And this comes from the idea of obviously Hamas, like I said, pretty conservative. They're not, they don't have the best rules in in relation to queer people, but just because of that, that doesn't mean that queer people in Palestine don't exist. And because of the actions of a government doesn't mean that we should dehumanize an entire population. Yeah. Um, a lot of cultures around the world have iffy views towards queer people, but that is because of Christian imperialism leaving its mark and spreading homophobia systemically into those countries. So it's a major oversimplification, major dehumanizing thing to say, oh, well, Palestine doesn't like queer people. So, you know. Yeah. And also there's an interactive website called Queering the Map I would recommend. And it's gotten pretty popular over the like recent times. And it's an app where you can posts anonymous geotag posts around the world. And in the past few weeks, there's been a lot of people posting in Gaza. There was one user said, please know, despite what the media says, there are gay Palestinians. We are here. We are queer, free Palestine. Um, Another one said a gay Palestinian man in Gaza is hated by people for being gay and hated by the Israelis for being Palestinian. I'm so lost and alone. Another one was a call to a former someone who passed away. And it says, yet you are gone now. If I had known that bombs raining down on us would take you from me, I would have gladly told the world how I adored you more than anything. I'm sorry I was a coward. Uh-uh. They're very like, it's so unbelievably dehumanizing to almost like erase the existence of queer people in yeah. these places. Like um, actual phenomenon wherein conservative logic is like, oh, queer people aren't treated right in Palestine is called pinkwashing, which is employed by Israel as well. And it's an attempt to brand Israel as a really progressive place as opposed to Palestine. And this is a pretty imperialist colonialist idea where it presents non-Western places as uncivilized, regressive, etc., as a way to justify the dehumanization and genocide taking place in these countries. 
Israel promotes Tel Aviv as a welcoming gay tourist destination. However, I'd like it to be known that Tel Aviv is built atop several Palestinian villages and is off limits to Palestinians of West Bank or Gaza. And um, there were some like, quote unquote, progressive legislature passed in Israel. And I liked this quote a lot. It was says, quote, a bullet fired by a lesbian is just as lethal as one fired by a straight man, end yeah. quote. And this refers to the IDF allowing gay people into the military. And it's like, great. Awesome. Yeah. Like, that's not actually progressive. No. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And like I said, Israeli de- oppression doesn't distinguish between straight and queer Palestinians. Palestinians of all backgrounds are being murdered right now, subject to genocide and apartheid. Um, and also, this narrative of pinkwashing isn't even true. Half in, in a recent poll, half of the people of Israel considered homosexual homosexuality to be a perversion. So it's not this like progressive place that we are painting it to be as a way to turn us against Palestine. And there are plenty of queer movements within Palestine, too. It's important to up to uphold queer Palestinian visibility. Yeah, it's it's this whole idea of like queer people in Palestine being oppressed is a very like monolithic depiction of queer culture that is intentionally perpetuated by Israel as a way to justify actions against Palestinians. Western queerness um, is much different from queerness of other parts of the world. It's a much more nuanced topic and doesn't like I I can't I can't even I (laughs) my notes are really messy there um, because I just had a lot of thoughts. But the end of the day, there is no justification for what's happening in Palestine because the actions of Hamas do not reflect indigenous Palestinian people. What's happening in Palestine currently is genocide. And I would urge all of our listeners to do their reading, yes. to make donations, sign petitions. Signing petitions is super easy. It takes literally seconds. I don't see why you wouldn't do it. Yeah. Um. And yeah, just again, form your own opinion, but... Be aware that it's very easy for misinformation to be spread. It's very easy for propaganda to be spread and be conscious of what you're reading. Be conscious of what you're seeing. Please check out the resources that we provided. We made I made like a master doc where just you can just every resource that you need to interact with is there. And yeah, that was a pretty intense, heavy episode. I hope you guys have a good Thanksgiving break. Yes. I hope things get better in Palestine and Gaza. Yes. Free Palestine. That's how. That's what I have to say about this. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we'll be back. Yeah, thanks for ch- educating yeah. yourself through mm-hmm. us. Through and us. Keep educating yeah. yourself, of course. We will be back after Thanksgiving. I guess my question is just if you have any other resources that you think we should share, please comment them. Yeah. Yeah. And I also was really trying to look for a resource that can help uh, fight anti-Semitism in the U.S., but I was trying to find an organization that doesn't support Israel, and I was having a difficult time. So if anyone knows of any, that could be really helpful. But I guess a a rule of thumb would be maybe support like local uh, communities like on your college campus, in your in your cities to support um, Jewish people in America. Yeah, because they are being subjected to pretty rough stuff as well. Yes. That was a pretty intense episode. We'll be back to the silly, goofy stuff next time in December. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.